Thank you for choosing to listen to the sermons of the Ninth Avenue Church of Christ. We meet at 2309 9th Avenue in Haleyville, Alabama. And if you're ever in our area, we would love to have you as our guests. If you live in our area, we would love to study the Bible with you. You can call us anytime to set up a Bible study or just to gain more information at 205-486-9247. Also, visit our website, 9thAvenueCofC.com, or check us out on Facebook by simply searching for 9th Avenue Church of Christ. Now we hope you'll join us for a study of God's Word as we seek to follow Him each and every day from the 9th Avenue Church of Christ in Haleyville, Alabama. If you open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15, there's only 58 verses. We'll look at every word of that chapter tonight. In all seriousness, we are going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 tonight. And if you didn't get one of the handouts, if you will have your Bible open to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, you will have the outline right there in front of you. We're going to stay in that chapter exclusively tonight except for maybe one or two references. There is a verse... In this chapter, in fact, we read it together a few moments ago, that is probably one of the favorites of a lot of Christian parents. It is probably a favorite of most youth ministers. And the concept of the verse is universally true, but it's the verse in its context that I want us to think about tonight. It is 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 33 where the Bible tells us, do not be deceived, bad company ruins good morals, or as the translation has on the screens before you, do not be misled, bad company corrupts good character. I don't know how many times I've heard or read or, to be honest, used that verse to talk about the importance of staying away from friends and staying away from influences that would be leading us to do things that are contrary to the will of God. In fact, just staying away from influences that are contrary to the will of God. And certainly, that principle is at play when we read that verse. There's no doubt about that. We see it in many other places in Scripture as well. You may think of the Old Testament command to not follow a multitude to do evil. But that concept is found throughout Scripture. But what I want to do tonight is think about the verse that you see before you in the context of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And by thinking of it in the context of that chapter, maybe it'll give us some more insight into what Paul specifically had in mind when he wrote that great teaching for us. And yes, that verse and this lesson goes along with our one word for this week, which is the word resurrection. I've not had a chance yet to listen to Brother Ricky's lesson from this morning, but I know he preached on a similar subject just by the title, and I want to thank him for filling in this morning. I know he did a great job. I've already seen on Facebook people saying what a great lesson it was, and I appreciate him for doing that. appreciate the elders, by the way, for allowing me and my family to stay through Sunday morning in Nashville so we can enjoy the whole weekend as a family and I have to rush back and, and be here. I truly appreciate that. But I want to think tonight about that concept that's found in 1 Corinthians 15, and how it leads to that famous verse. We're not going to look at everything found in the chapter, but I do want us to sort of look up to that verse. And I want us in the first place to notice the question of the Christians that is so fundamental to this great resurrection chapter. And it may seem strange to begin sort of part of the way through the verse, But I want you to notice that Paul was addressing in 1 Corinthians 15 a very real issue that they were dealing with in that congregation. Notice what he writes in verse 12 of that chapter. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? Notice specifically he says some of you are saying, or we might say some of you are asking that question. 
it seems that there were some Christians there at Corinth who were questioning what would happen to those who had died or those who would die before the return of Christ. Would they just be dead? Would they miss out on the second coming? There were all sorts of difficulties dealing with the, the second coming, specifically dealing with the resurrection. And those are logical questions, especially when you consider the fact, and I know this is very obvious, but 1 Corinthians 15 hadn't been written yet. Paul was writing it to them. They didn't understand this stuff. They didn't have these lessons before them as we do. And so Paul points them specifically to Jesus' own resurrection to build their faith and to ease the hurt on their hearts. And so this chapter, you may have heard this chapter described as the great resurrection resurrection chapter, and it centers around one question. What can I know about the resurrection of Jesus to ease my mind about my own death and resurrection. Now, as I said, I'm not going to look at every verse or the entire chapter, but I want us to notice that's the question that's being addressed in this great, uh, great chapter. And so Paul builds upon that. He begins the chapter by showing proof, or really it should say proofs, of the resurrection. He begins this chapter by pointing out some verses, some proofs that show that Jesus really is Raised from the dead. This is not just some hoax that was placed out there for people to build and have some fictional story to base their faith on. Instead, it's proven. In fact, Paul lists three things in the opening 11 verses of this chapter to prove the resurrection really is fact. First, as you see on the screens, it's proven by Scripture itself. Notice what's written in verses 3 and 4. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, and notice it, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Paul was saying that the resurrection of Jesus was not just some coincidence. It was prophesied, planned by God, and Scripture had been mentioned about it several times. Jesus had foretold his own resurrection several times. Tear down this temple and I'll raise it up in three days, being the most famous time. But it was not the only thing he said dealing with his own resurrection. But someone could say, well, that was Jesus talking about himself. Is there anything anywhere else in the Bible? Oh, yeah. All the way back to the very first time when mankind sinned in the Garden of Eden, you recall that there was a prophecy of hope given in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15 where the serpent was told that the one who was to come would crush his head. You know, oftentimes when we read that prophecy found in Genesis 3.15, we point to the cross, and rightly so. But folks, if Jesus died on the cross and remained dead, then Satan's head has not been crushed. It had to be proven by the resurrection. And Paul will come back to that same concept later in this own chapter, the same chapter, by showing the connection between sin and death. Jesus put sin to rest, if you will, on the cross. He put death to rest by overcoming it, coming out of the tomb. In Psalm 16, David said, For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, some translations have hell, or let your Holy One see corruption. And you may remember that Peter himself on the day of Pentecost used that same prophecy in Acts chapter 2 to talk about the death of Christ as well as the resurrection of Christ. And so, Scripture itself is a proof of the resurrection. It was not just some amazing story made up in the time in which it happened. It had been talked about for centuries that the one who was to come would not just die, he would overcome death. But there was more. Paul also mentions that there were appearances of Christ. 
that proved the resurrection itself. He mentions that Jesus appeared to Cephas or Peter. He appeared to the twelve. But notice specifically what he says in verse 6. Then he, that is Christ, appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Of course, we know that means they have died. And then Paul goes on to share a couple of other of these resurrection appearances. But I want you to focus on that concept that Jesus appeared to 500 at one time. Why would Paul specifically mention that one, this large group? He was basically challenging those Christians at Corinth to say, go interview them. At the time in which this letter was written, notice he said, most of which are still alive. He's challenging them. If you're wondering about this, go talk to ones or write a letter to ones or whatever who had seen the risen Lord themselves with their own eyes. Wouldn't that have been an amazing thing? If Jesus was not raised from the dead, this is a dumb challenge by Paul. To go interview people who had seen Christ himself. And notice, he does not just say, go interview the apostles who are still living. This is just a massive group, 500, and specifically it says 500 men. There were probably more than that at this particular appearance. You go interview them. The appearances prove the resurrection. And then also, Paul proves the resurrection by reminding them of his own apostleship. He had been, verse 9 says, one who persecuted the church. But now he says in verse 10, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And that, of course, began by the appearance of Christ himself in that vision on the road to Damascus, as we know it. Paul was basically saying, how else can you prove the fact that I became an apostle? This is Paul. We're introduced to him, of course, as Saul, the one who persecuted the church, breathed out threatenings against the church, took prisoners from the church, and bound others, wanted to put them to death, and on and on it goes. And Paul was basically saying, would I have given up this, if you please, religiously charmed life, the great Jewish life, in order to suffer for a cause that I really don't believe in? Who would do such a thing? And so Paul puts himself up as part of the proof And so there is proof of the resurrection. The question, if you please, is answered. But Paul also wants them to see that not only is the question answered, he says, I want you to think about what will happen if you do not place your faith fully in the resurrection. And so he shares with them some dangers of rejecting the resurrection. What does it really matter? What does it really matter if we believe in the resurrection? I want to suggest to you that this chapter, as well as all of Scripture, points us to the fact that everything matters on it. Everything we believe matters on it. It matters to our faith. It matters to our destiny. Read with me if you will. This is a lengthy reading. But I want you to read with me from verse 13 all the way through verse 19. Paul said, But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Some translations have futile. And your faith is in vain. We have even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep, that is those who have died, in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we of all people most are to be pitied. You summarize those six verses, and what Paul is basically saying, if you let me paraphrase big time, is everything we believe and everything we preach, we declare, is nothing more than empty phrases if Christ is still in the grave. 
And to top it all off, there is no hope of anything beyond this life if Christ is still in the grave. In other words, what's the danger of rejecting the resurrection or not placing our faith in it? Our entire system of faith is gone. Because the whole system of belief of the Christian faith stands or it falls on the fact of the resurrection. That is... That's why Paul ended that section we just read in verse 19 by saying, we're most to be pitied if all we have is hope in this life. Warren Wearsby, as he was writing about this uh, context in 1 Corinthians 15, ended his uh, comments with these words. He said the conclusion, speaking of these verses, the conclusion is obvious. Why be a Christian if we have only suffering in this life and no future glory to anticipate? That's what Paul is saying. Yes, we need to preach the old rugged cross. We need to point people to Calvary over and over and over again. But folks, we need to remind people that Calvary is not the end of the story. We need to remind them that there's also that empty tomb. Our faith is built upon the fullness of what happened around Jerusalem for those three days. The crucifixion, absolutely, but also the resurrection. We need to take people, including ourselves, to that empty tomb and be reminded of the foundation of our faith. It is, if that tomb still has the body of our Savior in it, if I may quote from Paul, we're pitiful because we are putting our hope in someone who could not conquer the, our greatest problem or our greatest fear. Our greatest problem is sin. Our greatest fear is death with no hope. And if we're putting our faith in one who couldn't conquer those things, what are we doing? But if that tomb is empty, then people need to know about it. Because our faith is true and our faith is right. I'm told by those who study such things and project such things that by the year 2050, there will be an estimated 2 billion Muslims on the face of the earth. And while there are all sorts of problems and false teachings associated with that religion, I'll tell you what is a non-starter with me as far as studying that religion at all. And that is I can visit the, the tomb of their founder and he's still in there. But folks, you cannot take me to a tomb where Jesus is. Oh, you can take me to a tomb we might think he is, or, or he was, I should say. We, we can guess, but he's not there. If he is there, everything falls. But since he's not, everything stands. And so Paul then writes about the results of the resurrection. I love how verse 20 begins. You may have noticed this week it was my bulletin article. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. If you mark in your Bible, I would highlight, underline, put flashing lights around that word fact. right? But in fact, Christ has been risen from the dead. Paul doesn't say, I sure hope it's true. He doesn't say, it'd be a good thing to guess that. He doesn't say, it'd sure make it easier if that was true. In fact, Christ has been raised. And if that's true, then what difference does it make? As you see on the screens, first of all, it makes a difference because it provides hope for the faithful. This was what was bothering those Christians at Corinth, was it not? Remember that question found all the way back up in verse 12? Some were proclaiming there is no resurrection from the dead. They were worried about that. And so Paul uses a beautiful picture from both the Old Testament as well as from their, their agricultural world to give these Christians hope. Verse 20, he says, But in fact Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. 
First fruits, of course, were the first of the harvest, the, the first in gatherings, you may think of it that way. Uh, under the Old Testament law, you remember the, the first fruits were often brought as, as an offering to God, celebrating the beginning of the harvest and the goodness of God, but also pointing to the fact this is the beginning of the harvest. There's more to come because God is so good. What was Paul saying? He was saying Christ, by overcoming death, he, he overcame death, but by his power there will be more. We have hope of something beyond the grave because Christ gave us that hope. Also, Paul tells us that sin is defeated. Romans chapter 6 and verse 23, the wages of sin is death. When we sin, we die spiritually. We, we know that concept. We're hopeless unless there's a way out. And folks, the resurrection is that way out. When Christ overcame death, He was raised to rule over His kingdom, that is the church. And knowing that, read with me very carefully what Paul writes in the same chapter in verses 25 and 26. For he, that is Christ, must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And here it is. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Why do people die? We can give all kinds of natural reasons, but the real reason is because there is still sin in the world. Now, that's not to say, I'm not saying at all, that people die specifically because of their sin. That's, that's not what I'm saying. But sin is a part of our human existence. Excuse me, death is a part of our human existence because sin is in this world. That ties all the way back to Genesis 3, and it ties everything together until Christ returns. But Christ overcame sin at the cross And he proved his power by overcoming the result of sin, that is death, when he came out of the grave. Folks, it's the resurrection that shows us that, that sin is defeated. Not will be defeated, sin is defeated. When we simply come to Christ and meet him at Calvary and understand the connection with the empty tomb. And then also, there's a realization of the urgency of obedience. Verse 29, I'm not going to go into it deeply. I know it brings up one of the most controversial passages in all the New Testament where Paul talks about some who are being baptized on behalf of the dead. There's all kinds of odd conclusions of that, scholarly conclusions of that. You you can make your own case of what exactly Paul was having in mind. I will say this, I don't believe that this has the same concept of being baptized for the dead as, as some religions teach today, such as the Mormon faith that teaches that, because this was a connection to disbelieving the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15. And so if you're baptizing someone for the, who is dead and there's no resurrection, you're kind of wasting your time. I don't think that's what's going on here. But whatever Paul had in mind, here's one of the problems. We get into context like this one, and we look at the controversial verse, the hard verse, verse 29, and we miss the whole point. The difficult thing is not seeing the main point. It's found in verse 34, the end of the paragraph. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God, and I say this to your shame. This was our scripture reading a few moments ago. Did you notice that some were saying, verse 32, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. In other words, you can live however you want to live, because this life is all there is to it. If there's no resurrection, there are no real consequences. So the natural reaction would just be, live it up. Live however you want to live. Instead, Paul says, because there is a resurrection, verse 34, we need to wake up. There should be an urgency in life and an urgency in our obedience. Now, why did I take a few moments to to point out that baptism for the dead passage? Okay, Forget the controversial stuff. Whatever that passage meant to the original readers, whether we exactly know what it was or not, it would have also brought to their mind this fact, and listen very carefully. While they nor we can be baptized for the dead... 
we can be baptized for ourselves, and we must. Whatever the, the baptism for the dead was meant to mean, that's not what they would have focused on. Because Paul then five, four verses later said, Wake up! Understand that you must obey. There's a point at which we must wake up and be baptized, if you please, for ourselves. Now, we've spent all that time and have never gotten back to our theme verse. And you're thinking, that hour and a half thing you said a few minutes ago may be coming true. We've surveyed 34 verses of this chapter, but we have yet to come back around to that beautiful verse in verse 33. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals, or bad company corrupts good character. Now, as I said at the beginning of this lesson, that principle is virtually universally true. But I want you to put your thinking caps on for a moment and consider what we've thought about tonight and think about where it falls within its context. Paul was writing this long section of Scripture. We have it divided as one chapter, but it's a 58-verse chapter. That's a long chapter, especially in the New Testament. He's writing on one topic, resurrection. He was sharing facts about it, how it provides us hope, how to refute false teachings about it, and on and on he goes. But some were saying, there is no resurrection, so just live however you want. And it's in that context that Paul gives this teaching. In other words, the bad company that Paul is writing about in this chapter are those who teach there is no resurrection or those who live as if there is no resurrection. It's those who teach this life is all there is or those who live as if this life is all there is. That's the bad company he's trying to make certain that we avoid. May I ask, does that not sound like the culture in which we live today? As our society grows more and more secular, as our society seems to even sometimes grow more and more anti-Christian, we're told more and more in very overt ways and very subtle ways just to focus on this life. Or, if there is any religious tone to anything we hear, it's simply that you just live your life, you be a good person however you want to find goodness, and we're all going to heaven anyway. Don't worry about anything you know, as far as evil. and, and but You just be nice and everything will be fine. And so, just eat and drink for tomorrow you die. There's no real consequences whatsoever. When we let that begin to infiltrate our thinking, even in the smallest bit, our morals are corrupted because we begin to live as if nothing beyond this life matters. This is not a passage that specifically speaks about doing or not doing certain things. The reason I want to take so much time as we think about resurrection this week to point out this larger context is because that's the emphasis Paul was trying to give. This congregation at Corinth had a problem with some Christians who were struggling. Some didn't believe in the resurrection. Some were simply questioning, beginning to believe false teachings and so on and so forth about departed loved ones. And, and later, what if I die before the Lord comes back? What, what's, what am I supposed to do? Well, if there's no consequences, just live however you want to live. And their morals began to struggle. So where does Paul take them? He took them to Jesus. He showed them that the resurrection of the Lord is the reason they have hope. He showed them that the power of the resurrection and how it should change their life and to make certain that even those who influence us are those who have the same hope, who believe in that resurrection. And he does the same, by the way, at the end of the chapter. 
We're skipping a lot of verses, I know. And though he's giving these Christians encouragement, he points them to the glory of God. Notice what he says, beginning all the way down in verse 54. When the perishable, that is this body, puts on the imperishable, that is our heavenly or eternal body, and immortal has put on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. Now watch it. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, wait, 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 pause. Don't let your eyes go forward anymore. Therefore, based on 57 verses about the resurrection, based on 57 verses about how the resurrection is true, based on 57 verses about how we must make certain that we put our full faith in it, based on 57 verses that we must make certain that those who influence us are also those who believe in the resurrection, based on 57 verses of making certain that our total hope, our encouragement, our faith is in the resurrection of Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. For as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. How often do we even take that verse and forget that 57 verses leading up to it, rolling forward to it, are putting our work in the hope of the resurrection? Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. I'm not saying tonight that parents should never use that verse. (laughs) I'm not saying tonight that Bible class teachers, youth ministers should never use that verse because the principle is biblically and universally true. But sometimes it's worth taking these verses that we know very well and placing them back in their context and saying, what did Paul or whoever was writing actually have in mind? And when Paul wrote that beautiful teaching for us, that great reminder for us, what he was saying was simply this, every day that I live... If I allow those who believe there is no resurrection or who live as if, the, as if there is no resurrection to influence my life, I'm deceived. Because I'm going to begin to allow my morals to slowly crumble as if the resurrection is not real. But in fact, Christ has been raised the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Yes, Jesus died on the cross, and for that we are eternally grateful. But yes, Jesus overcame death, and for that we are eternally grateful. Because on the cross, He took away our greatest problem if it will simply come to Him, the problem of sin. And through the resurrection, He took away our greatest fear the fear of death without hope. Tonight, do you have that hope? Tonight, are you living your life seeing the connection between Calvary and the tomb and the hope that it provides? Or are you allowing this world to chip away at your morals, to chip away at your your character by saying, just live it up. Just live. Have fun. You got tomorrow. Tomorrow you got a whole life ahead of you. You know, that statement is true in a way because we have eternity ahead of us. Have you ever thought about the fact that statement is really only true of those who are faithful? 
because we have an eternal life ahead of us, but only for faithful. Tonight, if you've never become a Christian, Christ says if you will believe in Him, repent of your sins, confess Him as Lord, and be immersed in water, baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, He'll forgive you by the blood that He shed at Calvary. And you'll come out of those waters of baptism just like He came out of the tomb, and you'll walk as a new creature. Old things passed away, and all things become new. Tonight, if you're a Christian, maybe you're living in such a way that Maybe it's not just evil, overt, that sort of things. Maybe you say, you know what, there are certain things in life that are are beginning to chip away at my morals. And I'm only looking at today, I'm only looking at this life, and I'm forgetting to look beyond at the hope that Christ gave by overcoming death. And I want to live every day in that hope. I want to be immovable and always abounding in the work of the Lord. And maybe tonight you need to pray with you to encourage you or ask for forgiveness in your behalf. Whatever your need is tonight, we invite you to come while we stand and sing to encourage you.